Today is August the 10th, 2022. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key, and my colleague is Joe King. Do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how Facebook, Google, Amazon, and the other big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network. That's prn.live, L-I-V-E, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is also available on prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. The James Webb Telescope and the Big Bang Theory The James Webb Space Telescope has been sending back data for just a matter of weeks, and it is already causing major problems for the main theory to describe a creation with no need for a creator. This theory states that the universe began with a Big Bang and evolved from then on out. It all began with an explosion of particles and energy What caused the explosion isn't addressed, of course, and random variations in this cloud of particles caused some to clump together. The gravity attracted more, and stars ignited and then drew together other stars to form galaxies. A huge amount of work has been put into the theory, with massive complex experiments designed to discover every detail of how particles would behave under those conditions. It has led to thorough predictions of the way galaxies gradually evolve, with smaller, simple galaxies dominating the early universe and bigger, brighter, more complex ones forming later. Well, the trouble is, those predictions don't match up with the early results from the James Webb Space Telescope. As the James Webb Telescope looks out into the universe, it is looking back in time, when you're looking at the most distant galaxies, you're seeing light that has spent billions of years traveling to us. Scientists believe that some of the galaxies that the James Webb Telescope has photographed are from 300 to 400 million years after the beginning of the universe. This is very early. Scientists believe the first stars formed 250 million years into the universe existence. The James Webb Telescope is already giving us our best ever look at the universe's ancient history. The telescope's astonishingly sharp pictures have shattered astronomers' preconceptions about the early universe. The first problem is that it's much easier to find these ancient galaxies than experts thought it would be. What is most remarkable is that we have found two bright sources one at well beyond the expectations based on previous models. The discovery of an ancient, unexpectedly luminous galaxy may challenge our current understanding of early galaxy buildup. The discovery of a particularly distant galaxy hinted at significant differences between the physical assumptions in these models and the real early universe. We will learn that our universe was already aglow with fairly massive galaxies less than 300 million years after the Big Bang. 
neither the high number of such objects found, nor the high redshifts or ancient age they reside at are expected from the previously favored predictions. The type of galaxies the James Webb Telescope is uncovering is also at odds with the latest theories. Current theories of galactic evolution say that older galaxies are less uniform in shape, twisted and distorted by their formation in the more cramped earlier universe. The James Webb Telescope is already indicating that neat, disc-shaped galaxies are, in fact, ten times more common in the early universe than the theories suggest. With the resolution of the James Webb Telescope, we are able to see that galaxies have disks way earlier than we thought. It contradicts earlier theories of galaxy evolution. Another problem is the ingredients of the galaxies. Theories of galactic evolution say that stars start out mostly hydrogen, the most simple element. Over time, these stars use this hydrogen to build up more complex elements. Look into the earlier universe, and these more complex atoms won't have been built yet. The reality is different. The James Webb Telescope indicates the early universe is much richer in elements like oxygen than the models would predict. This all adds up to a serious challenge to these theories of galactic evolution. Scientists aren't rejecting the idea of galaxies slowly evolving. Instead, they push back the formation of galaxies to a point extremely early in the history of the universe. There goes the Big Bang. China graph probes stem from anger over failed chip plans. China's top leadership has grown increasingly frustrated. With a years-long failure to develop semiconductors that can replace U.S. circuitry, an embarrassment capped by a flurry of anti-graph probes at the top industry officials and the $9 billion rescue of Tsinghua Unigroup. Senior officials are angry at how tens of billions of dollars funneled into the industry over the past decade haven't produced the sorts of breakthrough that emerged from previous national-level scientific endeavors, according to people familiar with top government officials' thinking. Washington, which has steadily ratcheted up restraints on China, has been able to strong-arm Beijing and successfully contain its technological ambitions, they said, asking not to be identified, revealing sensitive deliberations. The investigations have sent shockwaves through a semiconductor industry long accustomed to top-level support. Xi Jinping's government had allocated more than $100 billion equivalent to build up a domestic semiconductor sector so the country could break its dependence on the West. A key area of scrutiny is its National Integrated Circuit Industry Investment Fund, known within the industry as Big Fund which had become Beijing's primary vehicle for doling out capital to the country's chipmakers. The nation's top anti-graph agency announced investigations into three more executives who helped manage the big fund's assets this past week, adding that it was dispatching a team to the Ministry of Industry and Information Technology. 
The same regulator was already investigating the minister, making him the most senior sitting cabinet member to face a disciplinary probe in almost four years. The government is investigating the head of the big fund. It was founded in 2014. The fund drew about $45 billion in capital and backed scores of companies, including Semiconductor Manufacturing International Corp. and the Yangtze Memory Technologies Company. The fund operated mostly behind the scenes and kept investment standards away from public view, which, some analysts said, undercut accountability. Beijing's frustration comes as Washington is slapping ever-tightening restrictions on China, adding to potential vulnerability for the Communist Party. The United States is increasingly limiting the kind of chip-making equipment that American companies can export to Chinese customers, while enlisting allied countries so that key suppliers like the Netherlands ASML Holding Company and the Japanese Nikon Corporation joins its technology blockade. This year, various government agencies began reviewing contingency plans for strategically important industries in the event of stricter U.S. sanctions. When senior officials examined the report on the chip sector last month, it became clear advances in the field may have been overstated and that many investment had failed to bear fruit. That ran contrary to a long-held belief that Beijing need only to throw enough money at the problem. Xi Jinping had repeatedly urged breakthroughs in key technologies as the world faces great changes not seen in a century. Despite years of effort, China hasn't made much progress in narrowing, let alone closing the gap with the West. Chip-making machinery is still dominated by the Dutch firm ASML, despite the effort of state science institutions and firms like Neurotechnology Group Company to design rival lithography machines. Japanese firms still control the supply of photoresist, a key chemical, though tech giants such as Huawei drove intense research of local alternatives to U.S. hardware. The country still relies on imports to meet the majority of its $155 billion in annual chip needs. Critics of Beijing's top-down policies have pointed out the enormous inefficiency that can result from freely doling out subsidies. Local media have reported about companies with scant experience winning incentives or grants for pursuing research. Powerful local interests have chased government money by championing projects in hopes of securing subsidies and, at times, political prestige. About 15,700 new semiconductor companies registered from January to May of 2021, three times the number from the same period the previous year, according to an analysis by the South China Morning Post. China can point to some success. SMIC has made headway against foreign competitors, though industry experts says its advances may be overstated. The country also vastly increased memory chip capacity. Beijing's frustration began to boil over in late 2021 when the Biden administration showed few signs of letting up on his predecessor's campaign against China, and it became evident Unigroup, the standard bearer for state-backed semiconductor innovation, was beginning to fail. 
The roster of investigations into chip industry figures now reached like a who's who of China's semiconductor pantheon, and the dragnet is expected to widen as investigations proceed. Not all is rose color in China. Congress passed the Bipartisan Semiconductor Chip Manufacturing Package. Congress has passed a bill that will invest more than $280 billion over the next five years to help the United States regain a leading position in semiconductor chip manufacturing. The original request from the manufacturers was $52 billion. Somehow, it became $280 billion with all the other extras that were added by both houses. With bipartisan support, the CHIPS and what now they call the Science Act was passed by lawmakers, and President Joe Biden signed the bill into law last week. The new funding is intended to help companies bring chip manufacturing back to the United States and, as a result, help lower costs and prevent supply chain disruptions. The current global chip shortage has limited production of new vehicles, for example, leaving Americans facing stubbornly high car prices. The spending is not paid for by any offsets and instead will add to the federal deficit. $52.7 billion for chip manufacturing and research. The package will invest $39 billion over five years to expand domestic semiconductor manufacturing. It will provide companies incentive to build, expand, and modernize U.S. facilities and equipment. The legislation will also create a new 25% tax credit for companies that invest in semiconductor manufacturing equipment or the construction of manufacturing facilities. Private companies that receive financial assistance will be restricted from expanding certain chip manufacturing in China for 10 years. The law will provide $11 billion over five years to the Department of Commerce to help spur research and development in advanced semiconductor manufacturing to invest in new technologies and expand workforce training and opportunities. Another $1.5 billion will fund a public wireless supply chain innovation fund to help telecommunication companies compete with Chinese telecom giant Huawei and limit the scope of other telecom companies with close ties to China. Millions of dollars will target workforce development to make sure workers are available to support more manufacturing. $170 billion for scientific research, innovation, and space exploration. The legislation calls for a historic investment in scientific research and development that amounts to $170 billion over five years, an $82.5 billion increase in the federal government baseline authorization. The majority of that funding will funnel through two government agencies, the National Science Foundation and the Department of Energy's Office of Science. The investments will help create a National Science Foundation Directorate for Technology, Innovation, and Partnership to accelerate American development in technologies like artificial intelligence, quantum computing, advanced manufacturing, 6G communications, energy, and material science. The federal funding will also fund the creation of new regional technology hubs across the country, strengthen small manufacturers, as well as reduce long-term supply chain vulnerabilities in areas such as advanced manufacturing, next-generation communications, 
computer hardware, and pharmaceuticals. About $13 billion will go to education in the science, technology, and engineering math fields known as STEM, including scholarships and fellowships with a focus of increasing access to education in these fields in rural areas. Universities, community colleges, and high schools may be eligible for the money in an effort to strengthen America's workforce so that it can support new chip manufacturing. And finally, the legislation also provides new funding for NASA with the goals of sending astronauts to Mars and to include the first woman and person of color to the moon. AT&T $14 million class action settlement. Well, do you qualify for eligible for a payment? A lawsuit accused AT&T of adding hidden administrative fees that are really just price increases. AT&T has agreed to a $14 million settlement in a class action lawsuit accusing it of burying phony administrative fees in customers' monthly bills. Millions of ATT customers are eligible for a payment stemming from a lawsuit claiming the mobile carrier illegally charged subscribers undisclosed administrative fees for years. A judge tentatively approved a $14 million class action settlement in June, and the site for filing claims is now live. Plaintiffs in the suit filed in the United States District Court for the Northern District of California argued AT&T failed to inform the postpaid wireless customers they were being charged a monthly $1.99 administrative fees for each line. Unlike prepaid subscribers, postpaid customers are billed after the fact based on their usage. So if you qualify or you don't know if you qualify, go online and find out and fill out the form. New NAND Flash paves the way for super-cheap, extra-large solid-state drives. SK Hynix has developed new 4D NAND Flash with a huge 238 layers, paving the way for high-capacity new solid-state drives. The new memory chip is described as the world's first 238-layer, 512GB, 3-level 4D NAND and is expected to enter mass production in the first half of 2023. Compared with the previous 176-layer model, the new NAND is said to offer 50% faster data transfer speeds at 2.4 gigabits per second, 21% greater energy efficiency for data reads, and a 34% increase in overall productivity. The arrival of the 238-layer product will see SK Hynix snatched a record for the world's highest NAND stack from rival manufacturer Micron, whose latest model features a measly 232 layers. Well, that's only a difference of six layers, so they're really equal. The 238-layer 4D NAND flash is a type of non-volatile memory that features in all kinds of storage devices, from memory cards, USB sticks, and portable drives to solid-state drives, for servers and client devices. The general trend in NAND flash development is towards a reduction in cost, per capacity, and an increased storage density, effectively eliminating the last remaining use cases for traditional hard disk drives. The arrival of the 238-layer product from SK Hynix 
marks another step in this journey. Unlike other NAND products on the market, the latest chips in the company's range features a 4D architecture whereby the logic circuits are placed beneath the storage cells. SK Hynix says this design allows for a smaller cell area per unit, leading to higher production efficiency. SK Hynix secured global top-tiered competitiveness in perspective of cost, performance, and quality by introducing the 238-layer product based on its 4D NAND technologies. Perhaps contrary to expectation, the new 238-layer NAND will make its first way to client devices, which will give content creators and PC gamers cause for excitement. Only later will the new chip come to smartphones and high-capacity servers. SK Hynix also revealed it is developing a 1-terabyte 238-layer product, which will double the storage density of the latest chip when it arrives next year. They said that they would continue to innovate to find breakthroughs and technological changes. Google TV is preparing to add its own free live TV. After first being reported nearly a year ago, Google TV is now making tangible progress toward launching 50 channels worth of free ad-supported streaming content. With Google TV, the successor redesign of Android TV, the company has been looking to make its platform smarter and more competitive with other smart TV options. One of the benefits of owning a Samsung smart TV is access to Samsung TV+, Plus, which features over 200 channels worth of free content supported by advertisements. By comparison, Google TV has steadily worked on its live TV options, gaining deep integration with apps like Pluto TV and Philo, as well as the company's own YouTube TV. As was reported last year, Google TV is set to expand support for live TV by including its own set of channels. According to text in the latest version of the Android TV launcher app, things will start out with an initial set of 50 channels. 50 channels of live TV without the need to subscribe, sign up, or download. These are distinct from other options available on Google TV today, as those integrations require you to download an app, while the new text says the channels are available without the need to download. More explicitly, the launcher refers to these as Google TV channels. So what should we expect to stream when Google TV gains its free ad-supported live TV channels? Based on an in-app description, there should be a decent variety of news, sports, movies, and shows. I went through the listing, and for news, there was ABC News, Live, CBS News, NBC News Now, Newsmax TV, USA Today, and some others. And some of my other favorites were also available. America's Test Kitchen, American Classics, and Hallmark Movies. And for those who like different kinds of shows, well, I don't know if I'm guessing, but Divorce Court is also available, and so is Deal or No Deal, and uh, it's Showtime at the Apollo, and many others. Based on the list so far, it seems that Google has managed to land quite a few well-known channels and brands to pad out its free live TV options. I'm looking forward to reviewing these channels.
Presenting Benjamin Rockwell with his IT Pro Series, Work vs. Home Computer, Part 1 of 2. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. It's time to talk about things that have to do with technology and the workplace. And in this case, John reached out to me. John Doe. Yes, that's right. I chose to anonymize his name or her name because they got into trouble. They got into a bit of trouble with the company that they work for. Why? Because they were using their computer for personal purposes. And I realized that this was something that uh, that we really need to talk about. We need to sit down and we need to refresh everybody on what is suitable to do with your work computer and what is suitable to do with your personal computer. Your personal computer should not have any work items on it. You should not put anything on it that is possible to come back and harm you later. What? Wait, what? It work comp- my personal computer. Yeah, that's right. Leave everything off of your personal computer that all belongs in the work computer. And the work computer should just get work items, not personal items. Let's let's bring that down into more specific areas. Well, for starters, I don't want you going on to Netflix, Instagram, Snapchat, blah, 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 TikTok, blah, 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 blah. I don't want you utilizing Netflix, Amazon Prime, or any of the different items that you would utilize on your personal computer. If it has anything to do with personal items, with just goofing off during work hours, if it has anything to do with anything that anybody could say that's really a personal item you don't want it on your work computer where are we going with this i don't want you storing your personal passwords on there i don't want you doing anything at all on your work computer except for that which belongs with your work even if your company gives you approval yeah there are companies i i've worked with uh, i worked for a company and it was always, it was always crazy. Oh well, they can do a couple of things. They can check their email. No, they can't. They can, they can goof off during lunch hours and what. No, especially oh, okay in in the modern day and age where a lot of people are working from home during your lunch hour. Keep your stuff separate. You move over to your personal computer. I have done some some various work vacation items where I went to a different location and I flew off to, well, well, we'll say this. I flew to California from where I live, flew to California, spent a week there, flew on back. Great. I took two computers. Technically, I took two computers, two tablets. I took my smartphone. I, I, I did everything that I that I needed to do on personal hardware, on my personal hardware. Yes, I had a very powerful work laptop with me that could have done all of that. And yes, it would have been a lot lighter on my back, uh, in my backpack, as I was going through the TSA. 
Hi, yes. Uh, yes, I need to separate this on out. Do you have three more bins so I can put my laptop bag here? I can put my two laptops here, my two tablets, my smartphone. Oh, yes, I need another one to put, uh, yes, my belt, my my shoes, my everything in my pockets. Look, this is how I did it. And this is how you should do it. Look, here's another thing that you want to be very careful. And this is... Again, keeping work separate from your personal items. Yeah, you can make friends on whatever it is that your company uses. Teams. The company I work for uses Teams. But it could just as easily have been Slack or any one of the other different instant messengers. You want to behave this is something a little bit different than, you know, that that office cooler gossip. All right. So you're all standing around in the break room. And you, yeah. You know, this 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 new boss is just just horrible. I can't believe it. Oh, man. If you say that over teams, somebody may actually like that new boss. You say that over Slack. Somebody could capture that information or even worse. Your company could. They could be tracking everything you're saying. We, we don't think about this, but it's all right there. The power to monitor every single keystroke that you do. So what else don't I want you to do on your work computer? Okay, LinkedIn. Now, a lot of companies encourage LinkedIn. The previous company that I worked, actually the current company I worked for, one of the first things that they suggest you do, yes, go on LinkedIn and let everybody know where you're working. It's such a wonderful place. And my son recently got a new job and same thing there. They said, hey, you need to update your LinkedIn account. He didn't have one, but that's another story. Uh, Look, do the work stuff, do the appropriate stuff, but don't search for new jobs. Don't work on any side jobs. And and look, I know you think it's just technology. They're not going to monitor me. And yes, for the most part, you would be right. Most of the time, they're not going to monitor you. But there is monitoring software on almost every computer that goes into the professional workplace. There's a variety of different ways that they are watching you. Maybe not today. Maybe not right now, but they can go back in time and they can find all of the different reasons why they think you no longer need to work for them. And that's not good. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. Google got hit with a lawsuit for dropping free workspace applications. A punitive class action lawsuit has been filed against Google in California by early adopters who are unhappy about the ads company's decision to demand fees for its workspace productivity suite. At the $5 million suite core is an allegation that Google promised adopters of what would later become Google Workspace that they would get to use a free version of the service for as long as a search giant offered it. Google Apps first arrived in 2006, was rebranded as G Suite in 2016, and in 2020, it was rebranded again to give customers the Google workspace of today. The complaint filed on August the 5th in 
a San Jose district court, alleges that from 2006 until 2012, in order to convince potential users to leave well-developed suites of services offered by Google's competitors, for example, Microsoft Office, of course, Google made a promise to early adopters of Google Workspace that Google promised that such users would always be provided a free version of Workspace, including at least the features that the service had when these customers sign up, as long as Google offered the Workspace service. As far as Workspace is concerned, after being referred to as legacy service, the freebie G Suite apps were discontinued in favor of Workspace this year, although one could continue to use the tools for personal use. Key to the complaint is an allegation that the workplace apps that first emerged in 2006 were refined with the assistance of feedback from those early adopters, resulting in something that was professional enough to actually charge for by 2012. As well as castigating Google for dropping its Don't Be Evil slogan, the complaint reproduced state from the search giant at the time that stated, organization that signed up during the beta period will not ever have to pay for users accepted that period, provided Google continues to offer the service. Well, I have a follow-up editorial. Free software is free, right? Well, here's not what's free about it. Continuing product development, testing, maintenance, and distribution. Someone's time or money or bandwidth or computing resources was consumed. Free software is often but not always distributed or available free of a purchase price. This unfortunately leads some users to believe that it was developed and that modifications come at no cost. The incentive to proprietary software developers is money, and if they are persuaded that the prospect of making money outweighs development time and various risks, someone may well develop the software. Some free software users do not seem to realize that developers of free software have no obligation to their users to continue to develop or support software than proprietary software developers have obligation for unpaid support or development. Demanding quality-free software or services is counterproductive. The free lunch still requires someone to pay to prepare the meal and someone to provide the food. In the case of Google Workspace, it is noted that one could still continue to use for free the tools for personal use. Firefox loses users and websites. Firefox has seen a steeper than usual decline in monthly active users. Now, the Canadian credit card company MBNA no longer lets its cardholders log into their accounts from Firefox. They are restricted to Chrome, Edge, and Safari. Firefox losing market share is somewhat alarming. Back in May, Edge had overtaken Safari to be the second most widely used browser, and it was clear from the firm StatCounter that Firefox's share of the desktop browser market share had fallen. To add insult to injury, Hacker News now highlights the fact that the Canadian firm NBNA, a major credit card company, no longer supports Firefox. There has been much speculation as to why MBNA is doing this, and the consensus appears to be, well, laziness. 
It saves having to spend the additional time to test application upgrades and bug fixes to work on Firefox. Edge is now based on the same engine as Chrome, and Chrome and Safari have a lot in common under the hood. Another reason for discriminating against Firefox might be its insistence on privacy. If a website respects a visitor's request not to be tracked, and this is the case, the amount of data you can harvest is, well, vastly reduced. There's also mounting evidence that MBNA isn't the only company writing Firefox off. If you were to go to the government website to renew your passport, you'll find that the following is on the website. The following desktop browsers are supported on this site. Google, Chrome, Microsoft Edge, and Safari, Mac OS only. In addition, several developers reported that they no longer include Firefox by default among the browsers they support, and only do so if there is customer request for it. Back in 2018, when Microsoft decided to use Chromium for Edge, it was predicted that this would only serve to consolidate Google domination of the browser market, and it is perhaps surprising that it has taken this long for tangible evidence to emerge. After all, why go through the trouble of extending testing to Firefox when the other browsers are all using the same layout engine? This could well be the start of the end for Firefox, and it's a sad note of affairs. The Raspberry Pi users will soon have a new operating system to play with. Fedora operating system signed off for use on the latest generation of Raspberry Pi machines. Raspberry Pi users can now look forward to using a new operating system, which should be available in the final quarter of this year, on the latest Pi devices. The previously unsupported Fedora operating system will now be fully operable on the Raspberry Pi 4, with approval granted from the Fedora Engineering and Steering Committee in the first week of August of this year. Fedora 37 is yet another version of Linux, but its credentials extend far enough that it is rumored to be the chosen distro of Linux creator Linus Torvalds. Official sign-off for Fedora 37 has been granted to the Raspberry Pi 4, the Raspberry Pi 400, and the Compute Model 4. It is expected that general availability shall begin in October of this year. Fedora Workstation, one of three versions, is destined for use on the Raspberry Pi 4, which uses the familiar GNOME desktop environment, graphics drivers, OpenGL drivers, and GPU certification for Volcan are all behind this decision. Fedora summarizes that the work around Raspberry Pi 4 has been ongoing for a number of years, but was never officially supported due to a lack of accelerated graphics and other key features. With Fedora 37, Raspberry Pi 4 is now officially supported, including accelerated graphics using the V3D GPU. The support for Raspberry Pi 4 ecosystem has been an ongoing evolution. The aim of this change is to support the Raspberry Pi 4, including the 4B, the 400, the CM4 with the I.O. board. Hopefully, more Linux distros destined for the Raspberry Pi may soon be available. 
DuckDuckGo rolls out a new Microsoft blockers after the backlash. DuckDuckGo responds to criticisms with new update. DuckDuckGo is looking to douse the fire that started in late June when researchers discovered its mobile browser permitted, I repeat, permitted Microsoft trackers to operate while blocking those of Google and Facebook. The company CEO and founder, Gabriel Weinberg, sought to clarify the issue and set out a series of improvements. As per the post, the third-party tracker scripts from Microsoft are now blocked from loading across DuckDuckGo's browsing app and browser extensions, Chrome, Firefox, Safari, Edge, and Opera. Weinberg said, This expands our third-party tracker loading protection, which blocks identified tracking scripts from Facebook, Google, and other companies from loading on third-party websites to now include third-party Microsoft tracking scripts. Weinberg further explained how the company was limited in applying its third-party tracker protection program on Microsoft's tracking script due to a policy requirement related to DuckDuckGo's use of Bing as a source for search results. The company seems to have ditched the requirements in the meantime. We're glad this is no longer the case, the CEO said. We have not had and do not have any similar limitations with any other company. The company explained it believes the issues were blown out of proportion. Well, they should have done testing, and apparently they didn't do it. To help clear up some other misconceptions floating around, said the firm, Microsoft scripts were never embedded in our search engine or apps which do not track you. Websites insert these scripts for their own purposes, and so they never sent any information to DuckDuckGo. DuckDuckGo also said that suggests the company previously allowed all or even most Microsoft tracking attempts in its browser would not be correct. Prior to this update, we were already blocking most, notice he said most, but not all, Microsoft scripts from loading and further restricting Microsoft tracking through our other web tracking protection, like blocking Microsoft's third-party cookies in our browsers. Website used tag managers to load multiple other scripts, including those of Microsoft. Because of that, those requests were already being blocked by protection before this update. This explanation did not go into detail why they didn't do full testing to make sure that Microsoft was included, why Microsoft was not blocked while others were blocked. Presenting Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston with their tech chatter. Chuckles Candy and Tech Changes. Kind of a philosophical question. I'm going to throw at you, Marty. Okay. Is I, I want to know, do you think that humor is gone from America? Do you think that... Well, not in my segments. But in, in general life, do you, do, you, do you feel that people are having fewer chuckles in their day-to-day life? Well, now that, that I can respond to. I can respond to that definitively because I talked to the Ferrara Candy Company, and they make Chuckles candies. And the fact that most of the audience doesn't remember them <laughs> is why you can hardly see them anymore. Ch- Chuckles kid. Oh, I, 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 little I, I, rectangular okay. uh, uh-huh. kind of soft pillow-shaped gumdrops with sugar on the outside, and they had a row of, it looked a little bit like a watercolor box, a row of colors, and each had an actual flavor. 
And depending on your personal preferences, you either made sure somebody else got the black one, which was licorice, or you took the black one, which was licorice. I'll take the black one. (laughs) Favorite candy is good in plenties. Uh, You know, if I were if I were the president of the United States, that it wouldn't be peanuts, it wouldn't be jelly beans, it would be good and plenty sitting on my desk. And and who was the spokes character for good and plenty? Oh, I have no clue. Choo Choo Charlie. Choo Choo Charlie? I, you know, this is something I'm going to have to check out on the internet. <laughs> wow. All right. So, <clears throat> Choo Choo Charlie was an engineer and he took his box of good and plenty and he shook it to make kind of a choo choo sound. Okay. And there was a song to go with it. Oh, if only you were older, you'd remember this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Man. There are a lot of hard-to-find candy brands. This is really kind of a supply chain theme, but we'll we'll stick with it. Okay, yeah, yeah, all yeah. right. Uh, you know, Necco candy. wafers. Can we get Necco wafers still? Uh, yes. Okay. The, lots of candy I haven't seen since Greg. That's grade school. Uh, 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 Beeman's Peps and Gum. You know. Okay. <laughs> there, there's just. These splinter brands that are very hard to find, when you find them, they are always a little more than they should. Uh, of and course, because it's that nostalgia add-on. Yeah. Yeah. I used yeah. to buy this for a quarter. Yes, you'll now buy it for a, a quarter of a million. <laughs> uh-huh, what? So, you know, there were stores like uh, Five Below is one of the chains. It has bizarre candy available. And then yeah. there are little candy shops all around the country. And some of those may have chuckles. The only other place where you're fairly certain of finding chuckles and the price isn't ugly is a lot of Walmart stores still carry it. Okay. But what Ferrara told me, and, and here's our parallel to supply chain issues, the reason you don't find it elsewhere is that those stores simply haven't been ordering it. I guess not enough people buy it when it's there. Sure. Okay. Well, you know, and and things like this, you have to get it in the store and people have to know that you've got it in the store and then it has to uh, trickle on out and people will have to experiment and go, oh, hey, I've never heard of that. I'll try that candy. And and it's it's like anything else. Absolutely. I mean, this, this, I mean, this is right out of your in, out of your portion of the, the tech industry for years. It's getting that word out. Yeah, just creating demand and sell through and and all of making people want stuff. Yeah, that that's that's old turf for me, brother. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> but, but but you know, when when things aren't aren't the chuck. I mean, really, retail unpopularity mm-hmm, that yeah. turns things into retail rarities. Mm-hmm, yeah. So. You want to find Chuckles? RS-232 serial port cables are easier to find. (laughs) I have, uh, funny you should mention that. I I, I have over here, I have a box which has a few RS-232 serial cables still in it. I've got a 9 pin. Where collectors of antiquities, please contact (laughs) Benjamin Rockwell. I've got a 9 to a 9. I've got a 9 to a 25. I also have, um, uh, oh, Oh, why am I? I used to know this off the top of my head. The the printer RS four twenty two. What what's what's the um the parallel printer Centronics? Centronics. Yes. Yes, I have one of those cables in there too. I wouldn't brag. <laughs> <laughs> my wife's gone. You're a hoarder, and you never rat. throw anything away. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so okay. 
let's get away from Ted. It, for it's a funny because you know uh, what? It, what was it? A week or two ago, you and I were talking about hoarders. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, oh yeah, a recent oh, segment. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, it's going to be a recurring theme. <laughs> 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 oh, but man. chuckles, Republicans and Democrats who don't constantly insult each other, they're easier to find. <laughs> and people. People who actually show their faces on Teams and Zoom calls are easier to find. (laughs) That is, that's funny. (laughs) But but finding those faces eating chuckles, don't make me laugh. That's not going to (laughs) happen. Oh, man. You know, it's interesting that you, that you went, uh, that you went there to Teams. My, my boss just recently, he said, hey, on, on our Teams meetings, Let's start using the cameras. I'm like, wow. We 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 uh, we've spent three years. I've been on camera three times. Fortunately, I was uh, I, I was wearing a nice shirt that day instead of you know some. Well, you know the cameras we use for yeah, Teams yeah. and Zoom and so on. There are not the greatest cameras in the world. No, they're not. So if you stop at the Halloween store and you get the rubber head max mask, you can be anybody. <laughs> <laughs> It's funny, Ben. You've, you you look kind of like Richard Nixon. I'm no crook. <laughs> there we go. That's the heartbreak of phlebitis. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I'd like to thank the people at Howard Johnson's for combining two of my favorite flavors, the flavor of wintergreen and that of Alberta Kling peaches. I just wish they had not decided to call it impeachment. <laughs> oh, dear. And people, if you're old enough to remember that, you're too old to be listening to us. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Benjamin, and thank you, Marty. Public service announcements of computer club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut tri-state region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. The New York Amateur Computer Club... We'll have a presentation on using Zoom, What's New? Tips and Tricks, Thursday, August the 11th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website is nyacc.org. The Brookdale Computer Users Group will have a presentation, Cyber Securing U.S. Elections, Thursday, August the 25th. Meeting time is 6.45 p.m. Virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website is bcug.com. The Westchester PC Users Group will have a presentation on the James Webb Telescope, Thursday, September the 1st. Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website is wpcug.org. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey has a meeting on Friday, September the 2nd. Meeting time is 8 p.m., online virtual meeting via Jitsi. Website is acgnj.org. The King's Byte Computer Club meets Tuesday, September the 13th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., and they meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant, located at 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. And for more information and confirmation, the phone number is 347-278-7320. And the Long Island Macintosh Users Group has no scheduled meeting for August. But their online website is 
www.limac.org. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email addressed to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Joe King, Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy until we meet again, same time, same station, next week.